You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 8, but I'm going to begin uh, our text this morning in chapter 7, um, back at uh, verse 28. I want to begin there, and then we're going to move our way down through verse 15. And I do want to warn you, this text is a difficult one, (laughs) so it should be a load of fun for us this morning. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'll read. If you want to follow along, it'll be on the screen uh, behind me, in front of you as well. Um, If you've got your own Bible, you can follow along there as well. So I'm going to begin uh, in verse 28 of chapter 7. Here's what the Word of God says. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hatush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Perosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, of the sons of Pehath Moab, Elioni, the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men, of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him fifty men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him seventy men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him eighty men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him two hundred and eighteen men. Of the sons of Bani, or Bani, Shilomith, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonikam, those who came later, their names being Eliphelet. Jewel and Shemaiah, and with them sixty men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai and Zakur, and with them seventy men. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. <clears throat> Lord, I admit. I imagine we all feel this in these moments. As we read this list of names, it feels like one of the worst, most discombobulated lists of names in the Bible. Um, There are barely any names in this list that any of us probably recognize much outside of the name David. And so... uh, Lord, I just recognize uh, from the get-go, even in my own preparation uh, for this text, and I'm sure in the hearts of your people here, 
that it, uh, in, the, in the moment right now is hard to focus on what your word is saying. This is a text that we would just kind of read right on by really fast. And Lord, you know the hearts of men. And yet this is your word too. And, uh, so God, pray that you would come, that you would uh, focus the attention of our hearts, and uh, that you would help us to hear from you, and that you would speak a word uh, to us that would be helpful and spiritually uh, nourishing uh, to, to your people. So I ask that you would do that. I ask, Father, that in the midst of all this, that you would reveal um, to us in, in uh, refreshing detail and in greater power even um, the work of your son Jesus at the cross, the empty tomb, and the promise of eternity. I pray that you would do that and trust you to do so. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. So uh, what a riot of a text, right? Um, I... Uh, I remember listening to a guy years ago, a good friend of mine, um, preaching, um, he was the genealogy out of Matthew, and uh, when he had chosen to do that, I think he preached here for me, and I think I preached at his church, his name is Todd, and I remember Todd just looking at me, he goes, I'm, I'm a little sick, I really like preaching these lists, and I was like, bro, you can have it, <laughs> fun, um, and then over the years since then, I've had more opportunities to dive into these genealogical lists, and... Uh, and sometimes they are just difficult. Um, they're difficult enough to begin with. Um, I remember this week when I first read uh, the list. I, I usually typically start my sermon prep on Monday morning. I read through the text for the following week and start making some journal notes, studying, praying, asking God what, what you got going here. And you know, my rhythm throughout the week is every day I come back to the text uh, for a certain period of time. I start reading some commentaries, some books, and some articles, and so on and so forth. Um, I just remember when I first read this text, um, I remember thinking this would definitely be a tough one. This is not the easiest genealogy that I've read in the Bible or studied through. Tough to get something spiritually nourishing from. But at the same time, I've always believed that if, if this is in God's Word, um, there's a reason for it being there. God's Word itself is inspired, right? Uh, every word of it is. And as much of a tendency as you or I may have to just kind of skip past a list like this and be like, eh, I'm not getting much out of it. There is something really helpful and good that I think gets developed in us as we kind of stay the course. But at the end of the day, I think it's good to admit that a text like this does require some heavy lifting. Okay? It's going to require some heavy lifting as we work our way through it. But I do think there are some principles and some things that um, come out of the story in the background of it that I think are helpful to us. Uh, so that's my prayers the Holy Spirit would make it helpful. First thing I want to uh, make note of in the text is this. Pretty obvious thing that we see. Uh, what is Ezra doing? He's simply, first of all, gathering a ministry team, right? That's really what he's doing. He's gathering a ministry team. If you were to look at uh, the two, uh, these two verses kind of bracketed on the front and back end of the text that I just read through, uh, you'd see verse 28 of chapter 7. <clears throat> at the beginning, and then you would see verse uh, 15 at the end of chapter 8. If you were to take those two kind of brackets or bookends, so to speak, on the shelf, and you were to just look at those two, it becomes really clear this is what Ezra is doing. He's gathering a ministry team. <clears throat> Ezra is filled with courage at this point. Like We realized that from last week's study, right? After he got that letter from the king with all the provision and all the protection, all those things, um, Ezra is filled with courage. And uh, he's filled with courage because he knows that the presence of his loving God is with him, in him, on him. And in the midst of that courage, what does he do? He steps out and he gathers a ministry team. And the text tells us that he gathers a ministry team of leading men. 
And that phrase is really important. These are men who are going to lead. Right? Now, you, th- you think about this. Um, uh, we need leaders. Um, we need leaders. Uh, we need both male and female leaders. In this text, we're, we're looking pretty strongly at male leadership. And there could be a lot, a lot could be said about that. Um, but basically, what, what Ezra does is he gathers a team of leading men. And I think he gathers them for basically a three-day leadership camp, right? Because the end of the text says that he gathers them onto the banks of this river just a few miles outside of Babylon before they go and make this thousand-mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. And he gathers them there for three days. We're going to come back to it again next week and examine some of what that looks like as he's putting this team together. But that's basically what he's doing. He's, he's gathering this team onto the banks of the river for a couple of days so that he can prepare them for the journey. That's my sense. So from that, I think it's easy to see a principle in leadership. Um, and the principle is this. Uh, preparation is vital to executing the mission. Right? When you think about if you have a mission that God's called you to in your life, in your family, in your church, in your business, whatever it may be, you have a mission that you are on, that you are living. Preparation is vital to that, to executing it well. So I see that. Second thing I notice is that Ezra actually makes a list of his teammates. And we would all go, oh, duh, yeah, that's right. He makes a list of his teammates. He does. Ezra wrote this. And, and at first glance, it would be an easy thing to miss if you just read past the text and move on to something much more meaty. But when you think about it, Ezra actually makes a list of these names, and he lists out numbers, right? It's actually the largest chunk of the text that we've just read. It's about 14 verses, verses 1 through 14. Makes a list of the leading men that have joined the team. And he refers to them as the heads of fathers' houses. So so the whole thing is kind of constructed around the heads of fathers' houses, right? And the way that that Ezra writes the list is organized around um, not only the heads of fathers' houses and the fact that they're leading men, but it's also organized around three basic key groups of people, okay? Um, We won't spend a lot of time on it, but the list is structured around priests from the family of Aaron. So that's why you have names like Phineas and Ithamar. And then the second um, group of names uh, is royalty. People from the royal line of David. This is where you get that name, Hetush. Hetush. We won't even go there. And then the third group of names is based around lay leaders from about 10 more Israelite families. So all in all, what you have here is you have 12 families. You know, it's kind of like... The mob movies. You know, he's got the 12 families, or you got the five families. And this, you got the 12 families. And so he's going, and he's grabbing the leaders from the 12 families. And they're going to sit down, and they're going to have a conference. And some of those leaders from those 12 families are going to bring some men with them as well. That's basically what's going on. Um, I know I read that through my own unique eyes, and you guys get a kick out of it, and it's good. <laughs> That's the image I have in my mind. Um, 12 families listed in Ezra's ministry team. Um, And then again, like I said, uh, some of those leading men that he gathers, some of those heads of fathers' houses on Ezra's team, uh, they bring a bunch of dudes with them. And so the total um, number of men on Ezra's ministry team are 1,496 men. Who cares? Right? 
It actually is kind of a big deal when you think about it, uh, especially if you do the study between how many people are coming now with Ezra, 80 years after they were actually set free to go, and in the original um, return group in, in the beginning of Ezra, there's roughly 50,000 or more people in that group. And, um, and now 80 years later, it's a much smaller group. All Ezra is able to gather up is about 1,496 men. Now, if you count up maybe women and children, you may have a group of four to 5,000 people, right? That's still roughly 10% of the original group that came back. Another question scholars ask is, why did it take so long for these people to go? Why did they stay in Babylon? Why would they stay in a place that represented slavery? That's an interesting question and important to think about. That it took this long for this 1,500 people, leaders, to get up and get moving. Right? But um, that's what we have. We've got 12 families. We've got three divisions, priests, royalty, lay leaders. Um, what Ezra is doing is he's making a list. Um, and, and something that I thought principally, if you think about this, just what's the principle in the text that might help us um, when you're thinking about executing mission? We know that Ezra is a man on a mission at this point. And so that's kind of where I've taken some of these thoughts. When you think about executing the mission that God has for you, the, God, the mission that God has given you, um, it would seem here that organization and leadership is very vital to executing the mission, right? So again, first you had preparation on the banks of the river, and now you've got Ezra organizing everybody on a list. So preparation and organization seems to be very important if you're going to execute mission, if you're going to pursue what God has for your life, right? Third thing that I notice in the text and, and this, is, this is kind of going back a little bit, but the third thing that I noticed is that Ezra was executing a mission with a vision, right? Um, so as I was studying just the text, as I was looking at it, um, I started thinking about why. Why was Ezra gathering people? Why was Ezra putting them on a list? Uh, why was Ezra preparing them? Why was he organizing this ministry team in the first place? Um, like, because at the end of the day, I could step on stage, right? I could tell you, hey, in, it'd be really good if we would all become more prepared. It'd be really good if we all were more organized, right? Um, but, it, but why? Why is this happening? What's going on? And, and, and the answer to that, um, I think, is mission and vision. And when you think about the story of Ezra, you think about the story of Israel here and what's been going on in the text from the beginning until now, Ezra was a man who had been given a purpose for life. He'd been given a mission, right? He wasn't just lackadaisically doing whatever kind of jumped up in front of him that day. He seems like he's a man who has a purpose for his life. And the mission in front of him, I think if you go back and you look at, um, if you look at like verses 25 through 27, when you look at those verses that we studied last week, um, it seems like the mission for Ezra's life was pretty basic and pretty simple, right? A mission always has to be action-oriented. A vision is always image-oriented, okay? So, so, so mission is more, this is what we're going to do right now. Vision is, this is who I want to become. Sometimes you might say it like, 
<clears throat> hey, I am, uh, I'm working in this job daily. That's my mission. Because I want to see the people that I work with become believers. That's vision. You see what I'm getting at? Um, and so when you think about the action-oriented, future, future picture-oriented, mission, vision, when you, when, you, when you study Ezra, you find that his mission was simple, action-oriented. He was to restore a community of people centered on the authority of God's word. That's his mission. That's what he's doing. He's going to do the work of restoring a community of people based on God's word. There was also a dovetail to that where it was, I'm also going to beautify the temple. So those were kind of the two parts of his mission. So based on that mission, what was Ezra's vision? Right? What was his vision? His vision ties to the mission, and it's very simple. It's an image, and the image in front of him is what? A word-centered community and a beautiful temple. Make sense? That's how you get mission and vision to tie together. That's what's taking place in Ezra. <clears throat> now I can imagine Ezra, if you imagine him with me in these moments, now that we kind of have this picture of what's going on for Ezra, he's a man of mission, he's a man of vision. I can imagine Ezra uh, taking that letter that we studied last week from the king, right? He's taking that letter from the king of Persia, he's got that in his hand, and he's also got the word of God in his other hand, right? And he's visiting all the houses of the 12 families. Right? He's going to go visit this family over here. I'm going to go visit this family over here. I'm going to visit all the 12 families. We're going to sit down. Okay, so he's got both those in his hands. And he's going around and he's making his visits to those 12 families in Babylon. And I can see him. I mean, for me, I'd be sitting out back in my garage, right? Or something like that. But I can see him. He's sitting in the backyard, maybe, with the heads of these 12 families. And it's important that he meets with them, right? Because he has a mission and he has a vision for his life. He's not just a man who's doing whatever comes his way. He actually has mission and vision for his life. You know, that's Ezra. He's sitting down with these different families in the backyard or he's at the kitchen table. He's with those leading men. He's with those heads of the 12 families. He's explaining the mission. He's explaining the vision. He's explaining the provision, <laughs> that God has given him. You see all that in that letter from last week, right? I see him explaining those things to those families. And I imagine that Ezra knew that this mission, this vision that God had given him, that God was providing for him to do, I imagine that he knew it was too big for one man to do. I mean, he's already been given the directive to go gather some people up. Um, I, knew, I think that for, the, for Ezra, I think he knew that the only way he's going to lead forward in executing that mission and in pursuing that picture, that vision in the future, um, I think the only way he, he, he knew the only way he's going to do that is not by himself, which really strikes against the core of an American value that I am going to do this on my own, this individualistic, rustic, pioneer spirit that we all have. Um, that's kind of part, of part of the DNA right, of our culture. Um, he knew he needed to have people going with him. He knew that he needed to gather these men, gather these families, needed to prepare them, needed to organize them, needed to lead this massive team of other leading men, hoping that they would catch the vision. There's a phrase when you're thinking about doing mission and vision stuff that vision is caught rather than taught. I, I, so I to, part of my, um, 
I think shortcoming as a leader sometimes is it's hard for me because I'm a linear teacher, right? And so I talk about what the vision is for our church or my life or your life, whatever it may be. I may talk about that all the time, but I talk about that in linear fashion. And I'm not as much of a creative paint the picture. And so I think sometimes for me as a leader, it's hard for me to paint vision for people. I see a picture that is just different than most people because I'm so linear, right? And so it'd be great if we could get somebody to get a piece of canvas and paint a picture of the vision that you have for your life. You ask that question, who do I want to be? Now paint me a picture and let me see it. Get the finger paints out, get the water brushes, whatever, get the markers and, and make a picture of what that would look like for you so that we can all see it for each other, right? Not only that, but even organizationally, when you think about a church, or you think about a family, you move on and on. Paint those pictures. Um, that's why I think some churches today, church buildings and some families, uh, they have art on the wall. Um, says a lot about what's going on inside of them and where they want to go, where they envision their lives ending up at. At the end of the day, from this, I think um, it reinforces this principle. Leaders who catch the vision are absolutely vital to executing a mission. And I think Ezra had caught a vision, and I think these 12 families obviously caught the vision too, and so they got up and they went moving. Right? So those are the things that I see in the text. That's about it. I don't, I don't know there's much more. We could dive down into some of the priestly families and some of the royalty and some of the laity and talk a little bit about the 12 families some more, and that would be fun because I love using the Italian voice. But th- that's kind of some of the treetop stuff. So I got there in my study in terms of the heavy lifting pieces, and I just kept thinking about mission and vision. Um, so I've got a few thoughts um, to share with you um, as I thought about this uh, this week. Um, here's what we've learned if we can kind of recap what we've learned up to this point from just examining the text. First thing is preparation, right? Preparation is what? Vital to executing the mission. Organization was the second thing we kind of talked about. Organization is what? Vital to executing the mission. Um, The third one we learned was catching. Catching the vision is vital to executing the mission. So you've got three words that are very action-oriented. Prepare, organize, catch, right? Those are action-oriented. This is what we need to do. We need to prepare. We need to organize. We need to catch. Get a picture of somebody with a catcher's glove. We need to catch a ball. Here's the thing. If you don't have a catcher with a catcher's glove on, nobody's going to catch the ball. So for me, in, in, as I follow Jesus, I have to be positioned to catch the damn ball. Does that make sense? If I don't put the glove on, I can't blame anybody else that I don't catch the ball. You know what I mean? So I kind of have to put myself in a posture of being willing, humilitative, humble, teachable, wanting to catch the vision that God has for my life. Now that can go anywhere from being the, the personal application to, God, who do you want me to become in 10 days or 10 years? To, hey, I'm part of this family in my home, my wife, my kids. Have I actually caught the vision, the end picture of where God is taking me, right? And where I want to be. That's important. So I've got to be positioned to catch that ball. Prepare, organize, catch. Three active principles in the text. Some questions for you as we dive into some of these thoughts. What is the mission that God's called you to? 
Those are intentional words. What is the mission that God has called you to? Oftentimes, things don't go well in our lives, and we blame a lot of outside circumstances, and the reality is, it's just that I didn't do a good job recognizing what God's call actually was on my life, you know? Like, if I understand that God has called me to something, then even when it gets hard, the only person I got to blame is God. That make sense? And at that point, the, the work that I have to do is dealing between my relationship with God and nothing else. When hardship comes up, that's the center heart issue going on. What Satan wants to do is oftentimes get our eyes on other things, which is what causes division. Division is a word that means two visions. It means in my home that my wife has a picture of where our family wants to go, and I have a picture of where our family should go, and we're both going in two different directions. Now, if you take that division picture, and then now you see how many divorces happen in the country and even in Christians, right? Now, if you think about that and you just go, hey, both people have a really fuzzy vision picture of where they're headed, or they've got 150 images. Anybody ever struggle with that? Like the image changes every day? And it's like, gosh, would you just tell me where you're headed so that I can go with you? <laughs> you, know, would, you would you pick one picture? Um, so, you know, those are conversations um, that would happen in our home. Probably not in that detail, but... Um, it did cause me to think that way, that a lot of times that is the root. We haven't done enough work thinking about, clarifying, painting that picture. So, what is the mission that God has called you to? And, and, and what is that vision that is at the end of that mission that you're running? What do you need to do to prepare for that? What do you need to do to organize that? Those are questions. Now apply some principles um, that I thought of as I was thinking my way through it. First thing, without a clear calling from God, your mission's going to easily drift into self-centeredness. Right? Without a clear calling from God, your mission will easily drift into self-centeredness. I kind of alluded to that a little bit ago. Um, and this happened over and over again with Israel. Right? If you go back to the story and you try to root these things in the text without forcing it, I don't think. I don't think this is forcing anything in there. If you just look at the story of Israel in the book of Ezra alone, and you just, like, you just put some blinders on, you stay there, you don't go anywhere else, it's really easy to see that Israel had been in mission drift for years. I would say even nearly 80 years. Because they were released from captivity 80 years ago, and they went back to rebuild the temple, and they were focused on that. But what they had lost in the midst of that was any kind of word-based spiritual vitality, community being based on the word kind of thing. They'd lost that completely, which is absolutely amazing because it's that kind of a sin and rebellion that it actually landed them in captivity 150 years earlier, right? How, so how does this happen? Well, here's how that happens. The rocks outside the church and the weeds on the other side of the church and the holes in the walls and that blue stripe that is out there in the stairway that has still not got washed off because I haven't done it, those are easy to notice. Right? Those are easy to notice. Now, I also notice this. If I think about my own home, when my home gets a little shabby and it gets messy and the dishes start piling up, right, and the laundry doesn't get done, what do you think my first instinct is? Any of the other guys in here want to take a Stab at it and throw yourselves under the bus with me. 
Tell your kids to do it. What's that? Burn it with fire. Well, you guys are much more sanctified than me. My thought is my wife needs to get off her butt and do her job. I noticed that I did say y'all are more sanctified than me. My point is my sin comes out and I start pointing my finger at my wife. And what does that tell you? At that point, I think you could almost say that the condition of my home is actually a direct result of the condition of my heart. Couldn't you? So, I think this kind of mission drift, this kind of self-centeredness, right? When, when, when you don't have a clear calling from God, when you lose sight of that, it becomes self-centered. This is what happened with Israel. They had become self-centered. They lost the vision. They lost the mission. They did not sense the calling. Especially these folks that were still living in, uh, in Babylon, that... that uh, that Ezra was gathering up. When you think about them and the reason that they didn't leave Babylon to begin with and head back to Jerusalem, most scholars, most commentators would say what it seems like is they got really comfy. How comfortable are you in your seat right now? Maybe some of you are like, well, actually, yeah, Joe, these seats seem kind of comfy, but I'm not that comfy. I'll tell you, the, the, the places where I get into this really, this the times when I get into this uncomfortable space of doing ministry or relating, that seems like when sandpaper starts rubbing on things, you know, there's friction in the marriage, or a little bit of friction between somebody else and the church maybe, you know, or, or whatever it may be. Um, in those places, it's an opportunity to grow, you know? Um, but if you, if you live your life in relative comfort all the time, you ain't going to grow. You're not going to grow. Um, so I think that's what was happening in Israel. They lived in relative comfort, right? They're building their houses. They're building their careers. They got their families there in Babylon. They got good paychecks coming in. Things are pretty good. You know, some tough stuff, but it's not as bad as it used to be. So why would I make the thousand-mile trip all the way over to Jerusalem where all my other family went? Because they lacked a clear calling from God. They hadn't spent time asking that question. And then Ezra walks into the room, right? You see that moment, right? They're all comfy, they're in their comfortable seats, so on and so forth. Ezra walks in and he's like, yo, I got this clear calling from God. I want to execute this mission. I want to restore a community of the word. I want to beautify the temple. And what happens? 1,500 people are like, yo, I'll go with you. Actually, probably closer to four or 5,000 if you count them women and children, right? Now he's got a ministry team of four or 5,000 people. It's nuts. The question is, what is the mission that God has called you to? Second principle of mission and vision thoughts. This one's a fun one. You see all the P's on the screen? <laughs> this did not originate with me, just so you all know I'm not smart enough to pull this one off. But somebody taught me this one years ago. Or I read it in a book somewhere. So I just got to make sure that there's somehow footnote into whoever is out there in the universe that wrote this thing. This principle is fantastic. It has stuck with me for years. And I love trying to say it because it's an absolute tongue twister, right? Poor preparation promotes poor performance, but prior preparation prevents poor performance. You think about the wisdom in that. It's like, oh yeah, duh. You know, if I get up in the morning and I actually prepare to make dinner tonight and I pull the stuff out of the fridge to make it, guess what? We'll eat dinner tonight. <laughs> and if I don't 
whole stuff out of the fridge to make money. Guess what? I'm still going to eat dinner. I'm just going to eat out, and it's going to cost me out the wazoo, right? So you could say poor planning, <laughs> poor preparation also costs you. You could say that. I mean, this could just be a whole wisdom-filled thing if you just keep thinking about this. Poor preparation promotes poor performance. Prior preparation prevents poor performance. Appears to me in the text that no one had really prepared for this idea, this mission, this vision of restoring a word-centered community in Israel until Ezra jumps up out of his seat. He's like, yo, let's go get this done. There's a man called, got a mission, got purpose for his life. Ezra literally heard the call of God on his life to go do this thing. And he took what God had provided to him and he gathered this team. And he began to prepare them on the banks of the river, right? The time for poor preparation and poor performance, that was over. Now it was a time for some prior preparation. It was time to actually be prepared and prepare people so that you could prevent the poor performance. I love all those Ps. <laughs> the question is, what do you need to prepare for the mission that God has called you to? Third principle I notice um, is this. A mission without organization is merely words on a paper. Follow me? A mission without organization is merely words on a paper. So think, imagine this with me. You imagine what things would have looked like if Ezra had stepped up on the stage, stepped into the room, into those kitchens, right, recruiting people, Imagine what it would have looked like if Ezra had stepped into those places and he's like, hey, yo, I got this, 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 this great mission. I want to get on it, right? And the mission is this. I want to restore a word-centered community in Israel. I want to beautify the temple. And you're like, yeah, let's go, right? It's like those commercials we keep seeing on TV with the goat, the greatest of all time. Let's go. <laughs> Come on, people. <laughs> I love those commercials when they come on. I'm always trying to find when he's going to say, let's go, <laughs> let's go. And he gets in the car and he goes, let's go. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's Ezra, though. You imagine if he steps in and he's like that and you're like, yeah, <laughs> let's go, right? Let's go do this thing. Um, but then Ezra doesn't actually do any of the hard work of organizing. And it's like, well, what am I doing here? You feel like you're getting your time wasted, right, at that point? Not really going anywhere at that point. Um, but, you know, imagine Ezra, again, he's got this great, he can communicate well even. He's got the words on the paper. Then he doesn't make a list of leaders. Um, he doesn't assign those leaders to different roles and tasks, right? We kind of saw that in the text. At least, at least by inference, or implication, he's recognizing, okay, I got priestly families, I got royalty, and I got lay leaders. He's thinking organizationally about the mission at hand with his people. Now, here's the thing. The flip side of what I'm talking about is also true. You can over-organize the heck out of something and never go anywhere. You can just bog an entire system down with way too much structure. Um, so, 
Ezra could have made. Think about it that way. When that happens, it looks like this. It looks like this really fantastic organizational structure, maybe flowcharts and all those things, connecting the dots everywhere, and it's almost barely intelligible, but there is definitely a skeleton of a structure organizationally. Ezra's got that thing, but he's got no names on it. Right? He's got no people on that list, or no people on his structure. At that point, if that's all he's got, all he's got then is in one hand, he's got an organizational structure, and on the other hand, he's got a mission statement with no people on the list, and it's too complicated. And what's going to happen then? Well, he's got nobody to equip, nobody to empower for the mission at hand. He's never going to do the work of empowering or equipping people because he ain't got no people, right? Without organization and people, Ezra uh, would simply have been just a man. Think about this image. Just kind of running around the community in circles. Um, I get the picture of like spinning your wheels in the mud. Okay? He's just running around the community. He's saying that he has a mission. Um, he ain't got no organizational structure to execute the mission in front of him. Get this paper in his hand. What he would do is he would continuously show up in the room and he'd be looking like somebody who didn't know what was going on. Right? Does anybody else feel that? You ever feel that in your own life? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. I'm, We've got these days where I'm not sure if I got any organizational structure to my life whatsoever. And I'm just reacting to everything happening around me rather than having a set of principles and organizational structure that I live by, whereby I live on purpose rather than living in this victim mentality. Oh, poor woo is me. This is all happening, right? Again, I think I don't care how organized of a person you are. We all struggle with that, don't we? That is called sin, just so you know, okay? Um, I don't want to, I don't know if I should take all the time to run through the scriptures and prove it, but I think it just, my gut, that feels true, right? Okay. Um, so here you got uh, that image of, of Ezra. Um, let me commend a book to you. If you've never read it, some of this thinking that I'm communicating, kind of fleshing out in front of you, that I think does connect well, um, comes from a book called The Trellis and the Vine. It's a book on discipleship and how to disciple people well. And in that book, Charles and the Vine, they do a really good job talking about organizational structure as well as people. And they talk about them with the images. Again, I don't paint pictures well, so this book paints pictures well. And the image is of a trellis. Can you catch the image of a trellis? And a vine, right? Um, and this book describes uh, that kind of leadership. Um, and what it looks like is you've got this trellis. It's the organizational structure. And you've just taken that trellis and you've chucked it out behind the garage. Then you got all these really cool rose bushes and vines over here on the side of the garage. They got nothing to grow on, so they're just on the ground in a heap. They're kind of pretty, but they're dying. Right? Um, that's really unhealthy. Here's the other picture. You could have this really big, beautiful trellis. I mean, you've painted that baby up. It's really beautiful colors. You got it all nailed together and stapled together. It's a great organizational structure, but you have no vines, no roses. Nothing to grow on it. What needs to happen, and so you're just admiring your great structure, right? What needs to happen is you need to marry the two together. And both of them have to be tended to. Sometimes the organizational structure, that trellis needs to be mended. And at times you need to clip and trim the vines that are growing on it. So that's kind of the big overall picture. You really see this come to life in Jesus' life, right? What does he do? He gathers 12 guys. <gasps> I just caught that. He gathers 12 guys. The 12 families, hello, Right? And he wants to change the world. Not through an organizational structure, but through an organism called the church. 
and so here we are. Um, think about your own personal life. Like, when you think about this, are you, like, more of a messy vine laying on the ground with no organizational structure to your life, no clue where you're going, right? And, hey, it happens, right? Um, what do you need to do? What do you need to do from this point forward as you're thinking about this? How would the Holy Spirit use this in your life so that you are not just uh, uh, words on a paper? You know what I mean? What do you need to organize uh, to execute the mission that God has called you to? Quickly, because I've got about five minutes left and I want to quit talking. (laughs) Fourth thing that I noticed um, as I was thinking through mission and vision stuff related to the text, um, this. A mission without a vision, a mission without a vision is simply a trip without a destination. A mission without a vision is simply a trip without a destination. There's really a lot that could be said here. Um, There's a lot that could be said about hopping in your vehicle. And a lot of us like to do that in different ways, uh, regardless of what kind of vehicle you have. I'll just keep that brief and generic. Whatever kind of vehicle you have, there's something to be said to jumping in or on that vehicle and taking off um, without much of a destination in mind, right? That can be actually very relaxing, um, it can actually be a, a lot of fun, very, very relieving. It can be very adventurous too, right? Um, but then even in that case, if you think about it, the vision's still obvious. What's the vision? What's the picture in your mind? Relaxation. Adventure. At least you've, you've got it, right? It's not like there's no vision there. There, there is. You just need to clarify what it is. Um, so that can be really, really good. But at that point, your, your mission for that kind of a vision of just relaxation and adventure types of experiences, um, then your, your mission is, I'm going for an unmapped drive. Right? That's my mission. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go for an unmapped drive. Why? Why are you going to do that? Because I want to experience some adventure. Oh, great. That's your vision. See? Um, and again, I'm not saying these things this way like, you don't get this. I'm saying this thing like, Man, this was fun to think about this week. And I'm like, heck yeah, this is starting to make some sense, right? Um, The point here is this. Vision, when you think about vision or that image at the end, that's the light at the end of the tunnel, okay? When you don't have a vision, there's no light in the tunnel. You're just lost in the tunnel. So so your vision is like a light. Most people say it's like a flashlight that keeps you heading in the right direction because you're headed towards that picture. Um, so that's vision. That's a light at the end of the tunnel. Mission is what you're going to do to get to that light. So can you imagine, once again, come back to Ezra. Think about Ezra. Can you imagine Ezra calling you up on the phone? Yo, hey, Will. Will's like, yo, what's up? Right? Okay. So Ezra calls you on the phone, and, uh, and he's like, hey, uh, um, what, what, uh, um, what, what do you think about uh, taking this, you know, 1,000-mile trip? What do you think about that? And think you'd, you'd start to ask, why would I leave my comfortable home in Babylon? Why would I leave my great paying job? I could die, right? Ezra, you're crazy. But not many people, not many people that like to risk their life for the sake of some crazy mission or vision, right? There's only a few of us probably that are crazy and stupid enough to do stuff like that. <laughs> Ezra, when he calls you, though, you're already comfortable, so what's going to get you up out of that seat? I mean, can you imagine if you asked Ezra, like, okay, fine, I'm thinking about it, but why? Why do you want me to go to Jerusalem? Why do you want me to make this thousand-mile trip? Imagine if Ezra's just like, we're going to go preach the Bible, yo. Okay. There's some people that probably get up out of their seat for that, right? There's some of us. 
um, if that's his vision, it falls terribly flat. It's small. So there's also something, too. Vision needs to be an image that you can almost never fully acquire because it keeps you heading that direction. Sometimes we get vision mixed up with goals. Uh, there should be goals in that tunnel to get you in that direction. It keeps you heading in the same direction. But it's no, almost always never fully attainable until you arrive in heaven. So that's an interesting part of it, too. But can you imagine if he just said that? If he just said, hey, I uh, just want to go preach the Bible logically. would be like, why are we traveling a thousand miles just to preach the Bible, Ezra? If Ezra's answer was this, hey man, just to preach the Bible, um, I think we would know that he had no compelling vision. Nothing compelling about that vision other than, unless you're a teacher and you like to preach the Bible, right? It only, it only speaks to one group of people at that point, with a certain uh, wiring. But if he says, hey man, I'm going to go preach the Bible because I want to restore a word-centered community. I want to beautify a temple. Then it's like, hey, that sounds kind of compelling. Like, I think I can probably get on board with that. Let me check with my wife and my kids and the other 11 families you've been talking to and we'll see if we're all going to go. Right? That's the compelling vision piece. Once again, remember, a mission without a vision is simply a trip without a destination. So what is the vision that your mission is supposed to accomplish? By way of application, <clears throat> I'm going to run over time here. By way of application, here's what we've learned, right? Just to cap, it, cap this off, preparation, organization, vision. All three very vital to executing a mission that God has for our lives. Without a clear and compelling calling from God, uh, your mission is going to easily drift into self-centeredness. So if you live your life in that cycle of self-centeredness, part of the reason might be that you don't have a clear and compelling calling. You haven't sought that out. You haven't owned that in your relationship with Jesus. Your, your relationship with God maybe has become more like very transactional. I spend my time praying so that I can check it off my list. Or I pray when I really, really want something so that God will like write the check from the bank. Um, not necessarily a relationship between a father who loves us and has a, a mission for our lives and a purpose for us to be alive. Right? Um, so that, that could be part of what's going on there. Without a clear calling from God, your mission is going to easily drift into self-centeredness. Poor preparation promotes poor performance. Prior preparation prevents poor performance. A mission without organizations, merely words on a paper. A mission without a clear vision, simply trip without a destination. Right? That's kind of what we learned. Now again, I don't know about you, but when I think about how Ezra executed this mission that God had given him, when he did that through all the preparation and the organization and the catching of the vision that he was doing... Um, I, when I read that, kind of feel invigorated on one level. On the other level, I feel a little bit like a failure, too. So I don't know about you, but I kind of feel both of those. You get that? Get that feeling of like, okay, I think there's some places and some ways I'm... And there's some areas that... Oh. Right, so when you think about this kind of stuff for your life, I mean, I feel invigorated about the mission that God has called me to. I feel, I feel invigorated about preparing, organizing, vision casting, all those types of things. Um, but I also feel a little bit of overwhelming feeling knowing that I kind of fail in this area sometimes too. And, and sometimes I make excuses. You ever make excuses? I make excuses when it comes to these things, right? I, I get, I'm frustrated, um, I'm worn out, um, just kind of flat out lazy this week, don't want to get after what God's called me to. Um, thankfully, God does make progress in, in each of us. He's made a little bit of progress in me over the years. Uh, when I make those excuses... When I get that frustrated, when I get that worn out, when I get that lazy, um, 
I find God, my good Father, stepping into those spaces of my life and reminding me, I have a perfect Savior. I have a perfect Savior. He never made excuses, right? Uh, he never got frustrated to the point of sin. It's great. Um, he never used his weariness as, a, as like a, a reason for laziness. When you think about Jesus and this whole thing, Jesus made it very clear. Like, like the, the, the harvest is plentiful, right? And the workers are few. And this is a guy who gathers a small team of 12 men, um, called them away from their comfortable living, so to speak, gathers them, walks with them for three years, um, and then they all abandon him. <laughs> His greatest hour of need. Like, you're talk about the concept of failure in mission and vision. That would seem like a failure, wouldn't it? Except that we probably should take into account that all along, Jesus was casting the vision. His disciples just never caught it. Get it? Sermon over, right? They just never caught it. He was casting vision the whole time. Jesus painted the picture. Hey, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. That's why I'm here. You know what their vision for Jesus was? They had 50, 50 of them. Probably not. Exegetically, that's probably not true. But they had many different ones, for sure. One of them, the major one, was you're going to be king. You're going to knock out the big, massive, ugly political power, Rome, taking over us. That was one of their biggest pictures. But they held on a lot of other pictures, too. And the one they couldn't seem to catch... He's going to die on a cross for the sins of the entire world. That was the image, and they didn't catch it. At the end of the day, this is what Jesus did. He still followed through, still pursued the mission his father had given him, the vision that he had for his life to come to seek and to save that which was lost to be a ransom for many. That's what Jesus came to do. Gathers that small team of 12 guys, they abandon him, dies on the cross, leaves the grave empty on the third day, leaves us with the promise of heaven. Jesus did all of that so that you and I could become saints. Right? It's crazy. Jesus did that work. So I, I don't know where you're at with all the questions I asked earlier. I hope maybe you got to write them down. I hope that it'll fill up some of your devotional time this week. And, and maybe you and the Lord can do some work together on what God has called you to. That mission for your life. On the picture that he has for you to run towards on the preparational work that you need to do on the organizational work that you need to do as I conclude all of this um, my hope is that when you catch the picture if you can catch the picture if you put the glove on if you can catch it that Jesus did all this perfectly and this is what enables you and I now to live our lives on purpose on mission with an actual vision for me, you guys have heard me say it linearly for years, right? My mission for my life is to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell, right? It's to proclaim the gospel. It's to plant disciples. It's to train leaders. It's to multiply missionaries. That's my picture. But my picture at the end, that's my mission. My picture at the end of that is this community of people who are doing that together. That's, that's my image. Um, it, it, it means transformation. It means that we own our own journeys. It means that we properly invest, right? Those are some of the words that bubble up. When I think about mission and vision for my life, which inevitably, because of my role as planting pastor, kind of seeps out into the church. 
And here's the beautiful thing. All those things, like the only thing that I actually think I bring to the table that was original with me was the running and rescue mission. Whenever somebody asks us about our church, I always say, hey man, we want to plant a church for people who don't like church and by God's grace, that's what we were given. That's crazy. I want to plant a church for people who don't like church. It sounds almost heretical, but that's where we kind of started. And by God's grace, that's what we've been given. When you take a look at our church now, you take a look at our people that are connected to us, I mean, it really is a pretty diverse group of people. Unfortunately, the bikers get all the attention. And the funny thing is there's only like seven of us in here <laughs> out of 100 or so. So we're just louder. I mean, we're leather. All our bikes are loud. I went ahead and mentioned bikes. Just. <laughs> you guys get the humor, right? <laughs> I mean, this is... <laughs> The whole idea of ever playing a church out of the middle of nothing is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> it really is. But there is an aspect to this whole mission and vision thing that whatever it is God's called you to, and whatever the vision is you got for your life, it's got to be almost preposterous, right? I mean, somebody once called it a big, hairy, audacious goal. A bagad, I think was the way they talked about it. Big, hairy, audacious goal. Well, what is that vision for your life, you know? Jesus? Yeah, that's good. Press into that. Like, I, I know, like, there's some... There's some real deep relational work that takes place between a believer and their father when the rubber hits the road of, why am I even here? What am I even doing? What have you called me to? How am I going to stick with it when things get tough? When you start asking those questions, you go back to the Lord and you spend that relational time. It's, it's beautiful. At the end of the day, a church may not continue to exist. I don't know whether this church will be here five years from now or not. I've gotten to a place in my life where there's a part of me that can legitimately say I don't care. I hope that makes sense. I care in the sense that, like, I always wanted a church to be planted, but at the same time, it doesn't, it doesn't, like, have anything to do with who I am. I know who who God says I am, right? My hope is, my hope is that some of you would live that same journey that same path, that you would maybe see a model or example of that and that you would go do that and see what happens in your relationship with the Lord as he clarifies those things. I've rattled on long and long enough. I love you guys. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of sharing it with your people. And uh, God, as we close, I pray that you come speak to us. I don't know where everybody in this room is at today. It's good for me to confess that sometimes I think I... I do know those things, and I really don't. You know those things, and so God, I pray that you come and minister to this church family. And uh, God, that you would clarify places that you want to do work in our hearts. If it's a lack of clarity when it comes to mission and vision, or lack of energy to prepare and to organize, or if it's just living under the shame and guilt of not doing those things, God, I pray that you come and do the work that only you can do in the picture of your your son at the cross. Trust that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.